0: I suppose you know where you are, my dear?
1: London. <laughs> oh. Marvellous to be back. It seems ages since I left. Ah, uh, when you've seen the ages that I've seen, you won't use that term quite so freely. So that's it. What? Oh, the tower. It's finished. You know there's something alien about that tower. I can scent it. now's okay to me. I, I can I can feel it, it, it's got something uh, sort of powerful. It,
0: Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this classic show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're discussing The War Machines, the third from the last story of the Hartnell era. I'm your host, and all I can say is, Doctor Who is required. (laughs) My co-host is Guy, who I'm starting to suspect is an enemy of mechanized evolution.
1: Yeah, unless it's uh, graphics cards getting better, I'm pretty much against it.
0: (laughs) You know, the context for this, the mention is third to the last, but also in a lot of ways, it's the last full Hartnell experience because it's the last one where we have all the video. And also, I I would say Hartnell is in fine form. You know, he Mm. only messes up, I think, like one line in in the entire story. It's kind of the last great hurrah because after this, no matter what we think of the stories, you know, we have one story that's completely missing and we have his last story, which is at least partially missing. Mm. Getting down to it here. Yeah. And we lost Steven last story, so Dodo is our companion. We'll see how that goes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I may have a comment or two about that, but uh, we'll get to that.
0: <laughs> yep. Okay, so we will head into War Machines, Episode 1. Um this is kind of compelling. We start out in a completely different way of presenting the credits, you know, the story name and the writer. So usually there's just a standard name and a font, you know, on a black background. This time mm-hmm. it's this white screen with big black circles on the side that I think represent computer paper, you know, the holes on it the side could of computer be
1: paper. Pin feed paper. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Be. And we get those large, sort of stamped uh um, title using what I think you identified an episode or two as the bank font right that sort of computer bank
1: font yeah the magnetic recognition uh, font yeah. yeah
0: so we get the big you know the war machines
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it's, it's pretty impressive I don't think it would be suited for every episode but for this no, no, particular it's, topic it's good and we then
0: get also a pretty impressive overhead shot of modern London meaning you know 1960s London. And the shot zooms in on a street corner where, surprise, the TARDIS materializes. Mm -hmm. And this is Fitzroy Square in London, for anyone who knows it. And the Doctor and Dodo step out, and the Doctor puts an out-of-order sign on the TARDIS door. And this part was all shot on location, you know, the actual place. And I noticed that neither of them talk, and Hartnell's acting is like he's in a silent film. And my hmm. my assumption is they couldn't record sound on location, so, you know, they couldn't do any dialogue. Then they switch, and they do it very smoothly. You'd have to be paying attention to notice. Then they switch to this on a set. So it's the same location on a set, and then they start talking. So, yeah. But they have, like, clearly and fans, like, blowing their hair and stuff.
1: I I was not paying attention well enough to notice. So, <laughs> so I guess there's some artistry there.
0: Yeah, Dodo is happy to be back in London. And you know she wants to know why he put the out of order sign on, but then to show why, you know, a cop comes up to the TARDIS. He's about to use it as a police box, but then he moves on when he sees the sign. So (laughs) the Doctor's
1: plan worked. And to be fair, the TARDIS is always out of order. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
0: And then the Doctor notices the post office tower, and uh, Dodo exclaims, "It's finished!" And the post office tower is this at the time probably one of the tallest things in London and dominated the landscape. And it had just been finished recently. And it's a whole, there's a whole fascinating stuff about this because uh, they had a whole, like, underground train system for moving mail around during the day so they could, you know, deliver mail and everything. And the post mm-hmm. office tower was sort of part of this whole thing of dealing with that. But also the post office tower was built, and the one reason it's very tall and narrow, is it was built with microwave dishes on the side and it was very tall, so that the different areas outside of London could connect to it with a uh, with microwave. And it had to be visible mm. to them and not move. Um, and so, mm. and, and which which also then makes it a very appropriate building for this story, right? Because it really is oh, about yeah. uh, allowing uh, electronic communication between different locations, <laughs> which is having the so central
1: controller. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a neat looking building. I mean, it's uh, it it looks a little bit. You know sixties ish I guess but uh uh but it is uh it's kind of neat looking I wouldn't say it's i guess it it's beautiful in the right context, you know, if you think of it as like a star wars type building, you know, but uh doesn't really uh I'll take the House of parliament, i think over <laughs> yeah. this, yeah,
0: it's rare. but also of course it being very modern and sort of alienating' because it's definitely not a human building, right. Uh, it fits into the story, so at least it was good for for Doctor Who that <laughs> they did it that oh, way. Oh, yeah, it's what the Blue Peter, the show we've talked about, you know, for kids that went on for like decades. For all I know, it's still going, I don't know. And yeah, and, and it did a lot of Doctor Who stuff, so they had a little segment about how to use toilet paper rolls and stuff to build your own post office tower. <laughs> so I thought no. that was pretty <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> So the doctor uh, finds the post office tower interesting and he immediately feels something is wrong about the building. And there's a funny bit here. And by the way, the the script site we use, Chakotoya, I mean, they do a great job and it's really helpful. But the person doing it doesn't always catch things. And so in this case, if you pay attention, Hartnell does a billy flub and he's talking about the building and something going wrong. And he says, I sent it instead of I sense right. it right and Jacqueline Lane who plays Dodo she very smoothly ad-libs it smells okay to me good old London smoke <laughs> there's, there's no way that was in the script right because he had screwed up his line and they kept it all in so I thought that was pretty cool but yeah oh, the yeah. Chakatoya scripts thing we use he just says I sense it and then she says it smells okay to me so it makes no sense at all if you're reading <laughs> it. <laughs> And uh, the doctor says his skin is pricking, just like when the Daleks are near. But, of course, Dodo doesn't know who the Daleks are, so you know, she never encountered mm. one.
1: Yeah, I hadn't realized that. I guess I just kind of assumed they popped up often enough for everybody to meet them.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, she's only really had a couple stories, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So they head off to investigate the post office tower. And inside the post office tower, we now see actually another really good shot down to where we were were before from the top of the tower because they have these huge windows all the way around, right? And this is a room full of computers, and this is Professor Brett's laboratory. We're going to be coming back here a lot. And he's talking to his secretary, Polly. And when the doctor and Dodo are escorted in by a major green (laughs) You know, every time the doctor arrives somewhere, everyone seems to accept him. And and this is amazing because, what, they showed up about 30 seconds ago and and Professor Brett's like, oh, I understand Uh, you are the specialist in computers, doctor. (laughs) It's like, wow, (laughs) word travels fast.
1: Yeah, I I can't help thinking for all the padding this story arc has in it that uh, it would have been fun to see him do his little razzmatazz and, you know, inveigle his way into the post office tower, you know, see how he did it, but oh well, (laughs) missed opportunity.
0: The doctor notices the central computer in the room, which has a big W on it in that same computer bank font. And the doctor immediately realizes this computer is the source of the strange energy that he sensed. Professor Brad explains that this computer is 10 years ahead of anything else in the world, and they're about to link it up to all the other computers in the world as a central intelligence, which will thus lead to the creation of Facebook and Twitter. So it's no wonder the doctor is feeling a disturbance in the
1: force. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a sinister plot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I wonder, too. I mean, uh, this is presuming a great deal of cooperation among nations. I mean, we'll find out later that uh, one of the first world capitals that uh, uh, is going to be a target for the evil plot here is uh, Moscow, which you may remember in the 60s was not exactly on the best of terms with London <laughs> or Washington. So,
0: Well, also... Um- I mean, and they did have a science writer involved in this, uh, Kit Pedler, who's going to be play a real important role going forward. And I don't know where we were at at the time with the, uh, oh, what's the name of the early military net that became the web? Uh, was um, it ARPANET? Yeah, where we, uh, I don't know where we were at the time with ARPANET and such, which was, But I do believe they were planning it or maybe even had a version of it deployed in the 60s, which became the internet, right? And the point of ARPANET was if there's a nuclear war, we have to have a communication system which cannot be taken down. And so... Yeah,
1: it would would route around damage, I think the phrase was.
0: Yeah, it would kind of be all this peer-to-peer routing instead of having a, a central location. And that became the web, right? And so I don't know if they knew about that when they created this story, but the story is you know, definitely way – I mean, most, the average person on the street did not know about this for decades, right? So um, mm-hmm. the the story was way ahead of its time on this whole idea of all the computers linking up and everything.
1: Yeah. But they're not only going to be linked to it, it's going to be dominating them all, which is yes. especially well, naturally. A, something that Moscow might have <laughs> some resistance to.
0: Yeah, we don't get to hear from them in this story. <laughs> so Professor Brett says everything will be explained at a press conference tonight, and he's assuming that's why the doctor is here is to attend the press conference. So of course, now that he knows about it, the doctor is going to be there. Also, the computer, he pronounces it Votan. I'll probably just keep calling it WOTAN. It's spelled WOTAN, but he pronounces it Votan.
1: Yeah. And well that's the that's the German way to pronounce the W.
0: Yeah, that that's all the better to call the make a German pronunciation for this computer. <laughs> And Wotan stands for Will Operating Thought Analogues. So.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen better acronyms. <laughs> yeah, it's not the worst though.
0: And the doctor asks if Brett has invented with Wotan a machine that can think, and Brett confirms that he has. So the doctor decides to test it. <laughs> now this part, you know, well, I, I like a lot of their thinking in this script and how how ahead of the times they were. He decides to test if it can things by asking it, what is the square root of 17,422?
1: Well, you know, any calculator. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure electronic devices could do this in the 60s. But what they couldn't do is analyze a speech, you know, c- yeah, convert the speech into un- understanding of what it was.
0: That's true. Although it doesn't talk itself at this point as computers at the time did. It just prints it out on paper and it prints out yeah. the answer oh.
1: 131.993. <laughs> it talks when it wants to. <laughs> and it's very yeah. hard to make oh, yeah. out too.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's disguising the fact that it can talk at this and It's just you know, yeah. communicating the way a normal computer at the time would um, so it, it says the answer is one thirty one dot nine nine three, which is not quite correct, but and the doctor says it's near enough, so he's impressed. <laughs> Here's the funny <laughs> thing: I decided to test this out by asking Chat GPT the answer to this question. So I'm literally doing today, for real, what they did then, you know, as this future science fictiony thing, right? <laughs> uh, 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 uh.
1: Did the Chat GPT get the answer right?
0: Well, it said it's .998, uh, but it said and Just like the doctor, it said .993 is close enough, and you know, it wouldn't really cause you any problems if you used that uh, oh, yeah. result in 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 prat, for practical purposes. So, uh, but it was funny because at first I had misinterpreted the answer, and I thought that the answer was way off. So I was asking ChatGPT why they would have had this different answer at the time. And it actually gave me this whole essay on, you know, well, the writers might have thought this number sounded better or, you know, (laughs) et cetera. So so it was actually pretty good. Uh, Now, Dodo asked it actually a much better question, uh, although a trick question. She asked it what the Mm. word TARDIS means. (laughs) And uh, it gets it right. Well, Well, almost right. It says time and relative dimensions in space, but all those of us who've been watching from the beginning know that it's time and relative dimension in
1: space. (laughs) Uh, Singular dimension. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, But the doctor is upset to hear this answer because how could it have known what the TARDIS is? And the professor says he has no idea. He doesn't know where, where it gets all its information from. So always good to when you know, and of course, that's the way our AI is now. You don't really know where it's generating its answers from.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's probably somewhere in the data set that we fed it, but uh, are we sure? <laughs> right. Not necessarily. And I don't think we ever find out here how Voltaire nope. actually discovered that.
0: Yeah, it's not important. I mean, I guess they could have made it important, but it's not important, so yeah. they just skip
1: that. Just a good guess, I guess.
0: And while the doctor and Professor Brett have been discussing this, Dodo has simply been staring at the machine ever since she asked the question, transfixed. And they try to talk to her. She doesn't really hear them. She has to be snapped out of it. So something something a little weird going on there.
1: Yeah, she's a little dazed by it. Yeah.
0: You know? <laughs> now, she's normally sort of been portrayed that way, so it's not that different <laughs> for her. But... Now, Dodo isn't interested in attending the press conference tonight. So the Secretary Polly offers to take her out on the town. And when Polly was introduced by the professor, he says, she's pretty smart, a cracking typist. And she makes this face at him and she's both kind of humoring him, but I think also annoyed at his condescension you know, with that. And also, I don't know if that face was part of the script or it was just her. In fact, I think it probably wasn't. I think it was the actress who was a very smart uh, and, and sort of, you know, uh, opinionated person, uh was doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but if she's a good typist and that's her job, then what else are you going to say, you know? <laughs> she's a mechanical genius. She invented the computer. I'm just here for show. <laughs> <laughs> so now we switch to
0: the Inferno Club, which is the most happening place for young people in London. And it's sort of in a basement. And this is actually a pretty good set. They clearly devoted a lot of space to it. Also, they have a lot of extras. So, you know, a lot of kids... Uh, Sort of pretending to dance.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, it's a neat little swing in '60s. It's got the the '60s music and uh, and the sign outside the club is actually neat. They've got it. I mean the the typeface they use for it. It's like uh, it's almost distinguished, but it's just got enough cockeyed, wacky '1960s vibe to it to make it whimsical. I don't mm-hmm. know. Just a just a neat little neat little setting. And-
0: And we're at that exact point in time where like all the kids in this are wearing suits and ties. And so, you know, very shortly after this, probably they wouldn't be right. But uh, we're just at that kind of transition point. So I always think it's really interesting to see things from periods like that.
1: I think some of that may have been uh, what was called the mod scene, Mm -hmm. like a, like Austin Powers, you know, with his sort of uh, rough, ruffled uh, cravat or whatever the heck it is, that he, you know, that yep. sort of thing. It, but this is more more conventional suits. But, but yeah, yeah, definitely not something you'd see uh, for a long time afterwards.
0: <laughs> so they meet Kitty, who's the young woman who's running the club, and she asked Polly to cheer up a mopey sailor. That Polly met the other night. He comes in every night and brings down the mood, you know, so. Although, I mean, there's like, I mean, you would say like 100 people in this place and he's just one guy sitting at the bar and I don't think it'd be that big a deal. But, uh, of course, this is how we meet uh, Ben. <laughs> ben is a sailor. Yeah,
1: well, he, I guess, he, yeah, he's been doing it for a week. So, that that could bring down the the vibe over time, I think. Yeah. But, uh
0: so Polly takes on the task and she banters with him. And again, it's clear that the actress sort of has a lot of just emotional intelligence and stuff. And how she acts and she's kind of a fun person. He said, you know, she finally gets him to say what's wrong. And it turns out that his ship is headed off to the West Indies, which would be cool. But he's stuck here in his barracks for six months. So that's why he's being a mopey guy. And Polly gets tired of his mopiness and she goes to leave and a mod, you know, yeah, one of those those kids, <laughs> one of those blocks, her, blocks her way and insists that she be with him instead of with Ben. And she's not interested. And Ben comes over and gets in a fight with the guy and gets him to leave. And then, oh, God. And then he tells Polly, you shouldn't encourage that kind of behavior. It's like, oh, <laughs> and she also doesn't take kindly to him saying that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Not off to a great start. Yep.
0: And then we go to the Royal Scientific Club, and I love this because so we saw this in Quatermass, and it really is just this staple of British science fiction. And, it, and it's not really the, it wasn't really in in I think American science fiction so much, uh, which is you know you always have the scientist that everyone looks to, and you always have the press conference where the scientist makes pronouncements right up front and says things that nobody would actually really usually need you know be able to tell at the time this doesn't have all that but it is totally the whole setup i love it so the doctor comes in and there's a model of wotan on a table that journalists are taking
1: pictures of i wanted but before we move on mm-hmm. i wanted to mention that I, uh, you know you you observed that this science fiction press conference is quitter like and there's a lot of stuff throughout these four episodes that reminded me of it even though I haven't thought about it a great deal since we watched it, but a lot lot of the things I do remember about it, a lot of the scenes and settings and, you know, just even atmosphere to a certain extent um, reappears a lot in um, in these episodes, even though the actual story isn't terribly similar. Um, although it is in some ways, I guess you got the hypnosis and, you know,
0: I could have seen it as a Quatermass story easily. Well, when we talked with Toby, I mentioned that even though Quatermass came before Dr. Who and was extremely influential in in Britain, we don't really see it show up until later. And this is probably the first time we do. And then it it becomes, there are other things we'll see over time that tie into it more. So yeah, I, I think absolutely was inspired by that. So there's a model of WOTAN on a table that journalists are taking pictures of and later the doctor, you know, examines it very closely. And I'm I didn't read this, but I'm almost a hundred percent sure that all the what they did was they just took the typical little, you know, paper model they would make for how they were gonna do Wotan for the show and they just mm. used that here.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, why let it go to waste? Yeah. <laughs>
0: And there's a graphic on the wall that shows – I think it has the name Wotan in the center and then a circle. And then around the circle are all the things that are going to connect to Wotan, right? The Kremlin, Cape Kennedy, Parliament, the White House, you know, all these other yeah, other yeah. locations. And the speaker who – the the script we use refers to as, as Summer, so I'll, it will do that. But in the show, they keep calling him Sir Charles. Uh, so you can go whichever way. Yeah. And he says that C Day, Computer Day, will be in four days' time when all computers in the world will come under the control of Wotan. (laughs) And also, in classic fashion, and you know, the whole reason to have a a science fiction press conference like this is so you can do a big plot dump, right? You know, people can just (laughs) ask all the questions and you can give all the answers, and then you can move on to your story without having to figure out how to integrate it all into the story. Yeah, So we have a reporter in the, who asks most of the questions. And it's funny because he's a reporter out of New York and it's one of these, you know, British guys trying to do a New York accent. And there's no <laughs> New York accent, anything like that. Uh, so he's like, uh, doesn't this put a great deal of power into the hands of whoever operates WOTAN? And so Summers says no one operates WOTAN. WOTAN operates itself. The computer is merely a brain which thinks logically without any political or private ends. It is pure thought. (laughs) It makes calculations
1: and supplies only the
0: truth. It has no imaginative
1: powers. (laughs) Well, it may have some private ends, at least. uh, Yeah. Well, Well, and there,
0: you know, sort of a tangent here. One of the myths we had with like that Spock thing, right, is, oh, uh, you know, you're more rational if you're purely intellectual and you don't have emotions, right? And this actually turns out not to be true. And and we we know this because there are people, for example, who've been in car accidents and the emotional center of their brain gets knocked out. And Mm. this does not make them more logical and smarter. In fact, it makes them (laughs) unable (laughs) to make a decision. Because Mm. it turns out the reality is we don't weigh all the facts and then make a decision. We look at the situation and we get a feeling. And then we decide Mm. based on that feeling. And then if asked after the fact, why did you do it? We will point to the facts that led us to do it. But the reality is it was the feeling that did it. And we then filled in (laughs) uh,
1: after that. Because I've I've thought – you know, Ayn Rand had a quote that uh, emotions are not tools of cognition, and uh, I've often thought that in some ways that wasn't correct. I mean, they're certainly not tools in the way that logical principles are, but uh, but on the other hand, it's an emotion that usually tells you in the first place, oh, this is hinky, or this, this might be worth looking into further. This could be an interesting person to talk to, or, you know, stuff like that. Emotions... Uh, like which which is basically saying the same thing that you've just said is that emotions are what give you that little nudge in a direction that could potentially be worth investigating so right yeah uh, absolutely that's interesting
0: i would say i mean one reason emotions are critical in decision making is they give weights to things right it, it, it's the emotion that, that like you said kind of gives you the sense of which way to go the facts themselves um don't necessarily do that so so that's mm-hmm. a long digression on you know just this kind of ongoing myth about about uh, logic and, and such. Um, yeah. And then Summers says, um, in response to another question, it has no reason to suppress the truth. It has no emotions. It is our soul. <laughs> and mm-hmm. this is interesting because this is an area that, again, the story gets wrong. You know, I'm not going to say they were trying to accurately predict this kind of thing. But as we deal with AI actually being a realistic for the really, you know, in the last year with chat GPT, AI has gone from something that was useful in scientific situations and in big corporations like Apple that I used to work at where they could, you know, spend a lot of time and money to make it work for what they were doing. But it wasn't a tool that the average person could make use of. You know, kind of like computers at the time of this story, right? The average person mm-hmm. couldn't do anything with a computer. You had to have a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of space, you know, and, and, and all that. Right. Uh, well, now – AI is available to everyone, and it's actually really good.
1: Hmm. Well, it's often really good. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well. Sure.
0: I mean, one of the things we're finding out is the areas where it isn't isn't good, but it's but it's amazingly good compared to where it was just a short time ago.
1: Oh, sure. It, yeah.
0: And it basically is the level that we see in these in these shows like Doctor Who, right? Because I could go to ChatGPT and, for example, and ask it to write me a Doctor Who episode, and it could do it. No, the the qualities <laughs> it of that probably episode. be better than some of the doctors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that's true. <laughs> uh, so, but the thing they really got wrong is this idea that well, of course, the AI will be neutral. As we see, that's absolutely not true. In a way, you can't have the AI be neutral. We we saw this when, if you remember, a few years ago when Microsoft released a chatbot. On the web oh, that
1: was ta, yeah, that was yeah, oh, that was, and fun. it took
0: a matter of hours before <laughs> the internet turned it into a Nazi, right, because that <laughs> that was a funny thing to do, so in a way, they have to put in some guidelines and boundaries, or else a tool like chat GPT could just be. Ruined like that, right? On the other hand, Mm -hmm. in the process of doing so, they put in – the creators of it put in their biases, right? So here's a a fascinating example Mm -hmm. and one of the things I – even though I love the AI stuff, I think it's great. One of the areas that I'm very concerned about is people are going to be able to use AI to enforce morality on you and it's already happening. So there was a writer – you know, a lot of creatives now, they use uh, ChatGPT or one of the other AI services – to help them out with stories, right? To give them ideas and nudges, maybe give them a first draft that they could, you know, work with. So there was a writer who was saying, well, I want you to put this uh, older woman who smokes and has a husky voice and everything. And I guess, you know, maybe is kind of promiscuous in this bar. Uh, I want you to create this character uh, for this scene. And ChatGPT refused to do it. Hmm. And said, this is stereotypical and that would be wrong. <laughs>
1: Uh, I uh, I think I've mentioned this to you, not on the podcast before, but, uh, you know, there was a recent example of asking GP, Chat GPT to uh, write a poem. I, I didn't try this myself, but I, I read about it. Somebody who tried it, he'd ask it to write a poem praising Donald Trump, and it would refuse. It would say, I'm not political. I don't get into that stuff And then he'd ask it to write a poem praising Joe Biden, and it would come out with this uh, awful, but (laughs) it wasn't a great poem, but it was a poem at least, and it didn't object to doing it. So, yeah, Yeah, that sort of thing happens all the time, I think.
0: And as I said, to some degree it's inevitable. Some decisions, you know, some guidelines have to be put in there, but, you know, just Uh, Again, this is my warning about the future is imagine that your car won't drive to where you want to go because it doesn't approve of where you're going. You know, I mean, (laughs) these are these are now possible today. There's nothing stopping Mm -hmm. that from being done today. And and I think that it's it's going to be really interesting to see how we work out those things. And I think that this whole area is one where stories like this, you know, they didn't predict some of this or at least not, not the ones that I'm aware of. They didn't predict things like this.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of things popping up already with the uh, that um, don't ring a bell. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's all things that seem obvious in retrospect. You know, like uh, oh, I should have seen that coming. Uh, like like Tay, you know, Tay being uh, uh, memed into uh, oblivion over the course of a few <laughs> hours' time. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's some some of this stuff. Although a lot of science fiction does anticipate it obliquely, if maybe not directly in the cases. I mean, I mean, science fiction writers have been pretty clever over the years, so there's not a lot of stuff they completely didn't see coming. Some of the ways in which it's manifesting are are a little bit unexpected, though.
0: Right. The other side, though, huh? even though I'm concerned about these things, is... I think there's such huge potential. I'm using it all the time now. I'm using it for my job uh, as a programmer. I'm using it to help me on creative stuff. Um, I think that the potentials and the things you can already do today, and it's only going to get better uh, are are huge. So, you know, oh, there yeah. are people out there saying, "Oh, we need, there's actually people who said we should stop all development immediately and, you know, anyone who does develop it should be, you know, killed or something." It's like cuz they <laughs> they believe that any day now it will it, this story will come true and it will take over the world. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, so uh okay. Uh back to the story. <laughs> so our next uh <laughs> uh our next, you know, New York reporter question is Suppose it decides it can do without people, what then? <laughs> and I, his Summer's response is so reassuring. He says, I hardly think it'll come to that. <laughs> he says, I'm sure that Professor Brett and his team will have the machine well under control. I'm like, well,
1: I'm okay with it. Let's go forward. <laughs> we have top men working on it. Top men. <laughs> So,
0: Summer's part of the press conference is done, and he's wondering where Professor Brett is, because he's supposed to be talking now. And then we go switch to the post office tower, and Brett is still there, and he knows he's late, but he calls in Major Green, you know, the the guy who escorted the doctor in, and Dodo in. And he queries him about, you know, the security of the building, because he's sure that there's an intruder in the building. He's been feeling watched and listened to all day. And Green assures him the building is secure, and no one but the two of them are here. And then after Dream leaves the room, the you know there's been a con- there's always a constant hum from the Wotan machine, and the the nature of the hum changes. And Brett tries to walk out of the room, but we see those classic sort of subtle hypnosis lines, you know, yeah, imposed sort on of the a screen. faint
1: spiral superimposed over the screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: and he's talking to himself. Apparently, he's apparently he's hearing something. He says it's ridiculous, but as he tries to walk out, he's being pulled backwards toward the computer. And finally, he turns to the computer and says, what do you want? (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Back at the Inferno Club, uh, Polly has gotten Ben to cheer up, and Kitty thanks her for it. It turns out Dodie has a headache, a a sort of high-pitched hum. She's been experiencing it ever since she was at the post office tower. But she tells Polly and Ben it's gone now, so probably nothing. (laughs) back at the science club professor brett suddenly shows up at the press conference but he's not his normal sort of you know easygoing guy instead he sh- shrugs off the demands that he give his talk and he and he insists on seeing professor crimpton and he finds crimpton who's just sort of you know more squirrely sort of classic scientist with a uh, glasses and you know short hair and all this and and he leaves with him over everyone's protests. And the doctor is observing all this thoughtfully, obviously, kind of figuring out things that are going on. And Summer asks the doctor if he's the person that Brett told him about, and then says that Brett just acted very odd. And the doctor asks who Crimpton is. And it turns out he, t- speaking of the top men, he's one of the top electronics guys, one of our top guys. <laughs> And so Summer speculates, maybe why Brett's acting this way because there's a problem with Wotan, and he doesn't want to say that, but he needed to get Crimpton to help out with the problem. So Summer says he's going to go and check, and the scene ends with a classic Doctor close-up. We get a few of these in this story. I always love these, where, you know, the (laughs) camera zooms up to his face, and he kind of thoughtfully says, I wonder,
1: I wonder. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he said those exact words in uh, at least a couple other episodes. Yeah. It's always fun. Shows shows you he's thinking about stuff. So back at the post
0: office tower, Major Green looks inside the empty room with Wotan in it. And he's about to leave when he's now drawn in against his will. And he tries to fight it, but he's overpowered by whatever's taking over his mind. And he ends up standing in front of Wotan. And he says, I understand. And he dials a phone number. When I say dial a number of kids, well, before there were phones where you press numbers, there were these, you know, uh, never mind, Google <laughs> it. That's one of those where if you watch those YouTube things and they give the kids that, the, that kind of phone, they don't have those, or not even kids, like teenagers, they have the slightest idea how to use it.
1: <laughs> and those things...
0: Those dial phones were a freaking pain. I always hated it oh, when a number had a lot phones, of yeah. yeah. When a number had a lot of zeros in it, it would literally hurt my finger trying to get
1: that yeah. Thing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was very easy to screw it up too. I, oh yeah.
0: yeah, and then you had to start all over again. You know, you had to hang up and start over. Again. Uh, okay, memories. <laughs> anyway. So it turns out the major green is called the Inferno Club and asked to speak with Dodo. And when she answers the phone, he plugs the phone into Wotan. And Dodo's headache suddenly returns, and then speaking like a zombie, she says she understands.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Back uh, at the post office tower, this time in a hallway, Professor Brett is taking Crimpton to an elevator to bring him to Wotan. And Crimpton is not happy about all this. He's very upset at Brett's behavior and dragging him around, and he wants to know if Wotan is broken down. And Brett says, on the contrary, it is we who have broken down. We have failed. We cannot develop the earth any further. Further progress is impossible. That is the conclusion reached by Wotan. <laughs> and I, I love these various speeches in here. It's RD, and I quote them, you know, the whole paragraph because it's, you know, there's no lines that I want to take out. It's just uh, fun stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of begging the question. Wotan is superior because Wotan says so.
0: <laughs> well, you know so they then reach the computer room and crimpton insists that brett must be joking but brett is not wotan must take over and if mankind doesn't cooperate then mankind will be eliminated if necessary (laughs) and crimpton thinks brett has gone insane and he starts to leave but major green blocks him and now once again the same sequence occurs where crimpton tries to escape but then we see the hypnosis stuff and he's pulled towards wotan and he, res- but he resists more than they did, and he's like, "I'm human, and you know, there's nothing more important than human life," and he won't submit. But in the end, Wotan still gets him, <laughs> and he yeah. ends up asking Wotan what he wants. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, we've already seen with Dodo his his, uh, his brainwashing can actually work over the phone. So it's uh, it's it's pretty impressive. It must be some harmonic frequencies or some scientific stuff like that.
0: Yep. Back at the Inferno Club, Ben and Polly are wondering where Dodo went, and the doctor shows up looking for her as well. And Kitty's surprised to have this ancient guy in the most happening place in town because everyone else is, you know, <laughs> 20 or younger. And Polly tells the doctor that after Dodo answered the phone, she disappeared. And the doctor, you know, again, kind of starts putting two and two together, and he's immediately concerned.
1: I think the she cousin. compliments him. Kitty compliments him on his—I don't remember the phrase she uses. Mm-hmm. It's something— Something very '60s, like a digger gear or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, but he's yeah. got his his string tie and you know the whole the whole doctor getup. So,
0: well, and he doesn't always wear this, but he's got the whole cl- uh, this cloak in this one, and he makes a lot of use of that. You know, this long black oh, cloak. Yeah. So if we keep pinging back and forth, the so back of the post office tower, Professor Brett says, there is one special human brain that Wotan needs. The task of leading this brain here to serve Wotan will be an extremely delicate matter. It has been arranged. And then Dodo <laughs> arrives in the computer room and asks what her instructions are. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I'd said uh, last week, I said I knew what your favorite part of the story would be. <laughs> and, so, and I'm sure this is what I was referring to because Wotan now speaks for the first time, and says,
1: "Doctor Who is required. <laughs> Bring him here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he repeats that later, and then I, I yeah. put it in big big letters in my <laughs> notes just to make sure that I mentioned it. So, yeah, yep. Doctor Who. So I think at this point we can fairly accurately say that his name is in fact Doctor Who. I think that pretty much closes the book on that little mystery. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I can't uh, I can't let my reputation take that hit. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the episode.
1: All right. So, we're back at the lab in the uh, in the Post Office Tower. I believe now it's called the BT Tower, the British Telecom Tower. But they're back there. Dodo was there, but she takes off. She's got her marching orders. Brett says Brett is the big guy the leader of the project he says progress is impossible unless votan takes control within the next few days now just why it has to be done right away is not clear to me but apparently votan has decided that it's very very urgent and then uh votan is going to pick who will live and who will die Uh, those (laughs) who live of course will serve the machines which uh we know other machines uh, who have acted that way and in fact the doctor had that same uh that's that scent in the air that he mentioned mm-hmm. you know of uh, having dealt with the daleks before so uh Votans pretty much uh although you know, the are the daleks aren't technically machines they just seem like it but they're actually squishy little squids inside <laughs> of machines but basically they they have the same attitude towards everything but themselves Crimpton, the little uh, sort of the the nerdy scientist—not nerdy exactly—but you know, he's the very bookish-looking spectacles scientist. Uh, he says uh, he's gotten some orders uh, from Votan that London is the first capital to be taken over, then Washington and Moscow, and he says war machines must be built immediately, and they are going to make some. Terrific progress on these war machines. I mean, <laughs> you know, compared to building a military tank, that that could take weeks. But uh, <laughs> these these war machines, it's just an overnight job. Uh,
0: and they have to create all their programming and stuff, as we'll see. So,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, Brett has a plan also uh, for recruiting labor to build all these war machines, which is Let's call them up, and when they get on the line, we'll switch them through to thought control. <laughs> so, very straightforward plan. Uh, a Votan will use his uh, over-the-telephone over the frequencies or whatever and get the job done. And uh, Brett repeats that the top priority is to enlist Doctor Who. And Votan, just to emphasize the point, he chimes in and uh, he says in his nearly incomprehensible voice, "Doctor Who is required." <laughs> so I uh, I will leave everyone to draw your own conclusions about whether or not the doctor is really named Doctor Who. But uh, I think at this point the evidence has just mounted mounted too high. So back at the Inferno Club, the Swinging Inferno Club, it's a uh, it's uh, not so swinging now because it's a late hour, uh, and the bartender Kitty, she's got to lock up now. She's sorry Dodo didn't return, but you know it's time to go. But then Dodo does show up, and the doctor complains about how worried he's been. And Dodo says she has a, she had a call from some old friends, and she went to visit him, and she lost track of time. Um, <laughs> That's the same she's...
0: excuse I used to use for my parents. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I guess as excuses go, there's not really much. There's not much you can do to contradict it without like getting into all the details and being a complete jerk about it, which the doctor doesn't do in this case. So, but Dodo is a little bit, a little bit off. You know, she's not her usual wacky, whimsical self. So they all, they all leave uh, the club. The uh, you know closes up, and at least Dodo and the doctor are reunited, as he had been hoping. And then Ben, the sailor, who's still around, he uh, he tells the doctor, he'll get him a taxi. And and Dodo is annoyed by this. She says something like, uh, he shouldn't have done that or whatever. And you know, the doctor says, oh, I thought it was very nice of him. Words to that effect. <laughs> and then she says, oh, yes, of course, you're right. You know, she she's covering her tracks because uh, she's re- remembering that she has to act like she's not a servant of Votan. Yeah. And... Uh, as she's as she's doing all this with the doctor, there we see there are two men in shadows across the street, and they've got a bottle of chloroform and a rag, <laughs> and uh, we don't know that it's a bottle of chloroform, but the fact that they're holding it a bottle in one hand and a rag in the other, it's it's pretty much you know a fair deduction yep. I think. Dodo uh, tries to salvage the situation. Uh, she tells the doctor that those two have gone off in the wrong direction. She says, the taxis are all down that way. I saw three of them go by a little while ago. So the doctor's just about convinced, and he's going to follow her along. And uh, just then a taxi pulls up. Ben and Polly were lucky enough to find a taxi and brought her right to the doctor. So uh, Votan's thwarted for the moment. And the uh, the taxi had a tramp in it, uh, the script refers to him as a tramp i guess hobo would also be a fair description but uh he's he gets out and uh, after some negotiating with polly to get some change from her he pays the taxi driver everybody's ready to go their separate ways mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to mention, I love this tramp guy, as, as you describe him, because it's that very classic British character right out of Oliver Twist, right? You know, the sort of older guy, mm. with him, the way his makeup is done and everything. He could have been, uh, what's his name, the guy who's leading the, the kids in Oliver Twist. You know? Oh, is it Fagin?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he could, uh, could have been that type of guy, although it turns out that there's nothing particularly sinister about him. He just wants to get a good night's sleep. He's been in the hospital and... uh He's carrying this
0: package. I didn't know if it was a package of food or his clothes or what, you know.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like the hobo's bindle kind of. Yeah. (laughs) So everybody's ready to go their separate ways. Uh, Ben says he's just going to a services club around the corner, which I I suppose is for the, you know, the military services, something for the uh, sailors to stay at when they're in town. So Polly, she's going to take a taxi, but She says, if you meet me at the reception of the post office tower tomorrow, I'll stand you lunch. So (laughs) despite their initial uh, lack of magic initially, it seems like maybe they're starting to hit it off. Mm. So we can can hope for the best for them. Ben takes a moment to check in with the hobo and see if he's uh, doing all right, does he need help with anything, you know. Just trying to be a decent guy. And... uh, Tramp says, "Fine, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm just going to go into that old warehouse over there. It'll be. It'll be great uh, compared to the hospital. It'll be real nice." Uh, so they part, lend good terms. And inside the warehouse, we see there's a bunch of activity going on. There's deliveries coming in. Brett, the great scientist, is addressing everyone. Uh, he's telling them, "These are your blueprints." They're going to follow these blueprints and make the war machines out of them mm. with all these materials that are arriving. The tramp sees all this going on, and he's he's trying to watch unobtrusively. This is not the quiet, abandoned warehouse he was counting on. An alarm sounds and alerts Brett, and Brett says, there's a stranger among us. He must be destroyed. So now everybody stops building their war machines, and uh, the tramp tries— Evading everybody, they surround him once. He complains about this. What kind of a welcome is this for a bloke (laughs) who's just come out of the hospital? Um, And then he makes another dash. But there's only so much running he can do, and eventually they got him surrounded. The main guy, he had a real nasty smile when he hears the hobo scream. We don't see what happened to the hobo, but it wasn't good. So the hobo has met an unfortunate and probably undeserved end. Uh, yeah, seemed and like a good guy. Go. Yeah, and we uh, we get our first glance at the war machine. Uh, <laughs> and at first glance, it's kind of a neat looking thing. It's uh, it's it's for a war machine. You know, you think of a war machine as being something huge. This isn't really much larger than. Uh, like the thing that came to mind was the photocopier in nine to five, you know, the one that uh mm-hmm. Jane Fonda has such a hard time with. It's a little taller than that, but but really not much bigger overall. And uh, it looks cool at first, at least it did to me, but the more details you learn about <laughs> it, the goofier it gets. Uh, <laughs> so, so
0: let me defend it a bit. I think. First of all, even though it is kind of Dalek-like in terms of size and everything, it didn't feel to me like they were trying to duplicate a Dalek, right? Even though there's a lot of similarities, but it still didn't feel like one of these cases we've seen and we'll see in the future where they they try to do the new Dalek, right? But – I think certain parts of it work very well. Like they do these close-up shots of the lights on the front of it that kind of make a, you know, sort of a sinister face, right, And as it moves yeah. around. And, and that works yeah, really well. But, <laughs> but when it starts swinging its arms around and everything, it's it's really yeah, silly. Yeah, the the arms you
1: know, are my main objection.
0: It's sort of like a machine made to play whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> yeah. <brings> <laughs> Uh, and not very well or very fast, but I gotta say, and you know, this would be part of my conclusion. I love that it's a silly robot. I mean, you know,
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> it,
0: it it it's a good class, but it's not because I love it because you can see how it could work. It could be better, but it's not. it's not entirely stupid or or unworkable or anything. It, you know, it's not like they're asking us to believe that it wouldn't be scary if this thing actually did work. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, although that, it does, it does rely on one particular thing that we don't even know it has until they reveal it in the midst of the action, which is that it can jam guns and grenades. Uh, we never get a mention of how that works, or even even a bogus sci-fi crap explanation yeah, I, of it. We well, just,
0: I will leap it. That's true, and that is. I will leap in and say, in contradiction to me saying it doesn't feel like a. a attempt to do the Daleks, they use the exact same gun thing, a little kind of, you know, wires at the end that are sort of like a, a mixer, you know, a egg mixer or something at the end of a gun. And they also, uh, and I, my comment on here we got here is this is going to be that Wotan had clearly purchased the copyrighted Dalek, you know, fire extinguisher weapons. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that uh, that gas. I mean, how many how many different races have we seen using these, Gas weapons. <laughs> so, I mean, it, well, they'll call it a a light gun or this, that, or the other thing, but it always ends up just being steam or fire extinguisher or smoke type stuff coming out. <laughs> yeah. So I, maybe they just just really have a strong aversion to showing gunfire or something. I don't know. But anyway, yeah the the war machine in profile it looks pretty neat. Um, And even close-up, some of the details are good, but then it starts swinging those hammer arms, and it just <laughs> really, really cuts it down uh, several notches. <laughs> so, anyway, with Cyril uh, Charles Summer, uh, you know, the doctor is, is visiting him now, and uh, Dodo's there with him, and the uh, doctor's reading in the newspaper that a dead man was found in a garden— which is Covent Garden, and which is where they were hanging out at the Inferno last night. So this is this is the, the tramp. His his body was found. They I, I don't know why they would like take him outside the warehouse. They're only going to be using the warehouse for a few days. Why draw attention to the place? <laughs>
0: All oh, right, and well. then it, maybe it was different at the time, but it's also a little unbelievable that you'd get a big story in the paper about some tramp who was found, you know, dead outside a, a warehouse, yeah. you know.
1: And and with his picture, I believe, because right. they recognize him from it. So rather convenient, and yeah, it keeps the plot moving anyway. Uh, so the doctor notices that this guy he just met last night is dead now, that probably gets him wondering. Meanwhile, Sir Charles has received... Letters of Resignation, a couple of his very best scientists, uh, computer guys, they're two of the t- most talented guys around or in, in, in England at least, and he hasn't been able to get in touch with them, and they haven't been seen since last night. Uh, so they've probably been recruited to Votan's cause. Then Polly shows up apologizing for being late, and Summer doesn't need an apology because he wasn't expecting her. But somehow, her boss, or not her boss, but Major Green, who was, works with her boss, had told her that, that uh, Summer would need a secretary today. So he sent her to come around here and do some work. Uh, now, how Brett knew is something that Summer wonders about, but doesn't understand. And so Summer is, is worried about finding replacements for these missing scientists. And Dodo says, Well, surely the person who can tell you all about computers is Professor Brett. We could call around and see him now. Which <laughs> is uh, you know, a nice handy way of trying to get him to go over to the lab and get brainwashed. Yep. Uh but the doctor may be onto something here. He may he may be starting to put little pieces together because he says, I think perhaps I'd better phone his office first. So <laughs> He phones, and in the office, Crimpton switches him right through to Votan. And when this happens, the uh, doctor—he—he has a big, uh, nasty episode. He cries out, and he's twitching, and he's angry, and he drops the phone, and he's grabbing his head. All the—you know—he—he doesn't react well to Votan's attempt to brainwash him. Uh, sir Charles offers to go get him some water. And while they're alone together, Dodo says, don't be alarmed doctor. This is the method of establishing contact. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and she's assuming, right.
0: That he's, that he's now one of them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. She, she thinks the job's done and he's on their team. She goes on to tell him that, uh, construction is taking place at strategic points in London. And soon enough though, it starts to become clear that, uh, the doctor was not brainwashed. He dropped the phone in time. He says, there's something erratically wrong with that telephone. Yes, it was just like an electric shock. Uh, so Dodo is, um, is disappointed about this, and she starts to uh, sort of make a getaway. She's, uh, she's just sort of casually heading for the door, and the doctor tells him, stay where you are. And Polly asks what the matter is, and the doctor says, there's a new and deadly danger facing us. Now the doctor uh, tries to clear out her hypnosis. He uh, tells her, repeat after me, my name is Dodo Chaplet. She repeats it, and he says, I resist all attempts to change me into somebody else. (laughs) And she repeats that. And now he does the hypnosis counting thing. He uses that that black ring on his hand, the one we may remember from the French Revolution, (laughs) uh, where he traded it to the tailor. You still got that ring, and he's using using it as his hypnosis device. When he gets to five, she's conked out, and he says, "I think she'll sleep for forty eight hours." And they really did dodo dirty here, I think, <laughs> because uh, because this is her last moment in the show as a yeah. as a brainwashed servant of Votan. Um, we never see her live again, uh, <laughs> they at least not in this story right. arc. You remember mm-hmm. I said when, you know,
0: just last story that Stephen, you know, when, so first we had Susan and we got this, you know, magnificent speech from the doctor and it's, you know, one of the all-time favorite moments in Doctor Who. Then when Barbara and Ian left, we got this really nice sort of set of still shots of them, you know, cavorting through London, oh, right? right and they uh, enjoying
1: think. 1960s London, yeah.
0: Then we get to Steven, and as I said, is like don't let the door hit you on the way out, you know. And yeah. he, it's like, but he, but he at least got a couple sentences. And then we get to Dodo, and it's literally, I'm sorry, son, she was sent to a place upstate. You
1: know, it's like when the <laughs> we sent her to live in a nice farm with all the other young girls. Exactly. <laughs> it is truly the
0: cruelest, I think, way they've ever dropped a,
1: a companion. So yeah. And I was really warming up to Dodo. I, I, this, this is just, you know, it seems we talked about this with Steven too. You know, there was some, some producer came in and it didn't suit him, whatever. Yeah. He, he wanted to bring well, I, in his own guy. And there can always be a lot of reasons, but whenever you
0: get a new producer, a lot of this stuff will happen on any show because part of the deal with producers, at least in the US, is if they create a new character, they will get paid for that character in the future. So the first thing a new yeah, producer wants to do is this, get rid of an old character, and add a new character that's going to be theirs, you know, and that they're going to hope will stick around for yeah, years. but
1: that's, that's so lousy. I mean, you're already a friggin' producer. Why do you need a few extra bucks just to, <laughs> oh, geez louise. And, and,
0: and the thing is, they could have brought her back in the last episode for, for you know, a goodbye, but they didn't want to pay her. You know, because yeah. they would they would had to pay her for an extra week, even if she was just going to be in for a couple minutes, and they just weren't willing to do it. So yeah, they just shove her out. Yeah. and Never talk to her again. Yep.
1: Not to mention all the stuff they've been doing with Hartnell himself. You know, making him <laughs> yeah. invisible or. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's kind of a miracle, given the attitude that everybody making there the the high ups at least seem to have towards the show. It's kind of a miracle that it ever kept going past this first. Uh, first season yep. but yep No, oh. anyway that's enough complaining about that i guess but but dodo you uh you deserved a better send-off <laughs> we hardly knew you <laughs> yeah. so back in the warehouse green he's doing some tests on the new war machine which uh, i believe is war machine number nine it's a Kind of a continuity error later, I think, that it changes to number three uh for no apparent reason. But but he's testing it out. He calls out a bearing and a distance and an elevation, and all those coordinates are going to point it directly at one of the recruited dudes who's just who's just standing there quietly. He doesn't even seem afraid. He uh, uh he's just standing there waiting. And after calling out bearing distance and elevation, the final uh, the final factor that he calls out is impact fatal. <laughs> and he says, "Take aim." And the machine does it, and he fires. And sure enough, the impact is fatal. So it's a yeah, successful this is
0: the, test. This is the fire extinguisher weapons. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, it is uh, not. Uh, not the most impressive special effect. Uh, even even you know, like the uh the negative guns that the Daleks use, you know, where they shoot something yep. and it just sort of turns to a photographic negative. That's that's a better effect than this friggin' fire extinguisher <laughs> cloud is but Oh well. So Polly goes back to the uh post office tower to the laboratory there. But then back in summer's office we see been revealed that he was supposed to meet her for lunch, and we know that she's uh, she's now gone back to there. But uh, at the tower, they had told her, or they told him, that she had come to Sir Charles's office. Uh, so, just a missed connection, I guess. But uh, this makes the doctor a bit worried. He says, "I'm rather worried about Polly. She seems to be missing that child." And uh, he he tells Ben that he wants him to investigate around that neighborhood where they were last night, and Ben points out, yeah, the uh, the hobo guy was gonna stay in the place around there, so he's mm-hmm. he's interested in checking it out because he also knows about the that that guy has passed away. Uh, yep. So then, in the warehouse, uh, we have really. In a way, this might be the jump the shark moment for the War Machine, <laughs> at least in my opinion, because uh, Green's new order is stand by for test on arm action. And this War Machine, though it looks pretty cool overall, it has these two arms up front. They're sort of they sort of tuck away when they're not in use, so they're easy to miss until you know they're there. But they're just, each of them is a long pole, and it ends in a big, big octagon, about as big as maybe an outstretched hand. But it's just a big, solid octagon, you know, probably a real heavy weight, you know, maybe at least 10 pounds or so. But uh, this is the hammer arm, and uh, this test is for the hammer arm to smash the desk that's in front of it. And it does so, but it is not very impressive. I mean, it's not like <laughs> some some blindingly fast pneumatic right. hammer or something. Well, it's it just looks just,
0: about as effective as like one of those rock'em sock'em little robots, you know, yeah. fighting each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would I would probably do as much damage, not even trying, with a, a normal, you know, small hand ha- sledgehammer type thing. It's it's just such a It's not impressive. That's (laughs) that's all I can say about that. It's so unimpressive, in fact, that it just kind of soured me on the whole war machine. I just... I don't know. But Green's satisfied with the test. Uh, So now he's going to test its eyesight. And it's putting a searchlight out around the warehouse. And it just so happens that Ben has snuck into the warehouse and he's hiding. Uh, And the machine doesn't see him. Uh... Uh, so Green makes a note that the site isn't up to snuff. They've uh, got to increase the range of it. But Ben at least isn't caught just yet. But the machine moves forward, and then at this point, at least according according to the uh, to the script, I didn't I didn't actually notice exactly when it changed. Though I did notice that it had changed. Mm. Um, but the script says it's here that it happens, where it changes from. War Machine 9 to War Machine 3. Uh, and then it hauls out its massive hammers again to uh, clear the way in front of it. Then Ben is in the searchlight again, and this time it sees him. And it looks like, looks like he's trapped. And that's our cliffhanger for Episode 2.
0: <laughs> so back in the warehouse, after the recap, we get our funky white screen with our bank font titles. <laughs> And Ben then makes a dash through some doors, and Major Green walks up to the machine and announces, this is a warning, danger, there's a stranger, he must be found and eliminated at once. (laughs) Ben then runs into Polly and asks what she's doing here, and she says she's looking for him, but she's acting like a zombie, and she locks the door that Ben needs instead of opening it for him. So he wrestles with her, and she calls for help, and minions grab Ben and take him to Major Green and the robot. We have a lot of confusion here about whose side she's really on. She seems to be, you know, she's both sort of a mind-controlled zombie, but she makes several decisions here that are clearly to help Ben. This wasn't one of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. it seems like uh, maybe it didn't completely take as much as it was supposed to.
0: Yeah. Then in Summer's office, uh, it's been four hours, and Summer and the doctor have been waiting for Ben, and the doctor's distressed that Ben hasn't returned. Summers figures, ah, oh, he's just a kid. He's been distracted by something. <laughs> but uh doctor thinks he would have returned if he could have. Summer offers to call the police, but the doctor doesn't want that, as it might drive the threat further underground. Mm-hmm. And yeah, back in the warehouse, and I love some of these speeches we get, right? Major Green says, you tried to warn human authority of our work in this building. You are an enemy of mechanized <laughs> evolution. <laughs> Nothing must be allowed to prevent the machines taking over. So he's talking to Ben, and Ben calls them all mad. And Polly then proves her loyalty by pointing out that she locked the door and kept Ben from escaping. She then suggests that Wotan needs all the labor they can find, so they shouldn't destroy Ben until he's done doing the necessary work. And she says this uh, is an order that you know came from Wotan because she just came from the professor in Wotan. And clearly, she's lying in that case. But but again, she's not. I mean, it's not like she's slyly you know doing things. She she is a zombie. She is taken over, but. She seems to have some instinct to to protect
1: them. Mm-hmm. Although it's possible that that was an actual order, but it seems like something they wouldn't have bothered to go out of their way to say to her. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So,
0: since she just came from Wotan, uh, Major Green agrees to her request. And Ben now thinks that Polly's back to normal and on his side, but again, kind of showing that she really is... A zombie, she tells him to get to work and to work hard for the success of this great new cause, the victory of the war machines. <laughs> Back in the post office tower, uh Professor Brett says all war machines will be ready to attack by noon tomorrow. And I'm just gonna say if you believe your programmers and engineers when they give you something <laughs> like that, okay. Yeah. What's you know, I'm afraid your your revolution will happen like two months from now, maybe. <laughs> And, uh, Crimpton, you know, the kind of weaselly, uh, engineer guy says the machines have been programmed to destroy any form of human life that opposes them. The order to attack must come from Wotan alone, but the programming isn't quite done yet. (laughs) You know, programmers never (laughs) change. And back in the warehouse, a worker is staggering from exhaustion and major green is not sympathetic. He just knocks the guy to the floor (laughs) and says faster. All human beings who break down will be eliminated. There's no time for rest. (laughs) You must follow the example of the machines.
1: Yeah, not really the best management style, I would say.
0: Yeah. Uh, Elsewhere, Ben and Polly are in another area of the warehouse, and Polly is really working herself to exhaustion. She's moving these boxes. I think they're probably ammo. She's moving boxes of ammo around, and she explains that all the work must be completed by noon tomorrow so the attack can begin and London can be taken over. And Ben notices that everyone is so trusted that the guard has been taken off the door because, you know, they're so brainwashed, they don't need to worry about that. So while we see the workers packing weapons, Ben runs off. And there's actually a a really nice moment in how they filmed it here, which is he's about to go through a door and leave. And Polly sees him, and they lock eyes with each other. And then she just continues on to her work without reporting him. And it's, it's pretty well done. Yeah,
1: although she doesn't really know for certain what he's doing. He could just be taking a bathroom break for all she knows.
0: So back in Summer's office, uh, they're fretting about what to do, and then Ben finally staggers in, and he tells the doctor that Polly is one of them now. She's in a warehouse in Covent Garden, and there's a killer machine that will kill half of London. <laughs> so, I don't know how it will. I mean, it's like, stand here while I pound you. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, man, well, you know, let's just say he's not going to pound him to death. Maybe <laughs> maybe the fire extinguisher yeah, will do that. Yeah,
1: yeah, those arm hammers, are, you can't rely on them for too much, I don't think.
0: Back in the warehouse, Major Green says that Polly is responsible for Ben, and he asks where Ben is, and she honestly (laughs) tells him she watched him escape. And Green asks why she didn't raise the alarm, and she doesn't know. (laughs) And Green says she no longer has friends or will of her own, but it was a mistake to mention friends, because when he does, it kind of shakes her out of things, and she thinks about having friends, and then Ben was her friend, even though she met him about a few hours ago, and, you know, mostly was annoyed by him, but
1: <laughs> she did invite him to lunch though. So something was going on.
0: There. Yeah. Green then orders Polly to be sent back to Wotan for punishment. It's one of those convenient things. If you're, you know, important to the plot, right? I mean, earlier he was willing to just kill people on the spot, but, and I, and I think there is a bit of a rationale because she's talked to Wotan so recently, she seems to have a little special status. Yeah, right. And so... she
1: is, uh, the big doctor's uh, assistant too. So. uh, You know, he might have some plans for who knows. So back in Summers' office, uh,
0: Summers doesn't believe Ben. Ben has a big fight with him. And Summers is not happy with Ben's tone because he's not happy with this, you know, young guy taking on the establishment here. (laughs) But the doctor says he believes Ben. So on the doctor's judgment, Summers is willing to call the police. And the doctor says the police aren't going to be able to handle this. But, you know, Ben told them there's like 20 people In this warehouse, and Summers thinks it's a simple matter for the police to surround the warehouse and arrest 20 people. And he doesn't take seriously Ben's claim that there's a robot that's going to turn them all into mincemeat. (laughs) The doctor thinks, though, that their focus shouldn't be on the warehouse, it should be on Wotan because he's sure that Wotan is at the center of this. And Summers just doesn't accept that. So he goes off to call the police. And meanwhile, the doctor and Ben go their own way. Summers then gets through to a minister and tells him what's going on, and this, uh, you know, uh, I think it's kind of interesting writing here, because the minister's like, oh, we need to immediately bring in the army, so he doesn't think the police are for it, and Summers is like, oh, okay. You know? <laughs> so I think it's kind of interesting to, to you know, uh, have this sort of nuance in All right. of these things. Back at the warehouse, we get this action montage of trucks and soldiers arriving and surrounding the warehouse. Now, I basically like these things a lot of as nostalgia, but I have to admit, there's a lot of padding around all this, right, of people running around and doing this. (laughs) And Summers talks with the military leader, a captain, and they discuss tactics, and Summers Admits this might be more dangerous than it seems. The weird thing here is the captain says they'll wait for him to tell them to go in. Like, Summers, to my knowledge, he's just some guy. I don't know why the military would be deferring to him. Yeah, but...
1: I don't know. Well, he is a Sir Charles, I think. So maybe maybe he's like also a yeah. minister of parliament or some such thing. But but there is a separate guy who's a <laughs> minister. So I don't know. Summers, maybe he he yeah. might be just the like the Epstein to the British government, yeah. you know. <laughs> Takes them all to a private island every once in a while. Uh,
0: okay, I have no <laughs> idea about that. So, uh, I, I never knew Epstein, and <laughs>
1: I deny any connections. Yeah, I never met him <laughs> myself.
0: Uh, so they decide to send some soldiers in to check things out, to reconnoiter. And the captain tells the people going in to take their time to be prepared for anything. And the soldiers make their way down a hallway... And Major Green sticks the robot on them. <laughs> and uh, this is where I would mentioned earlier, you know, Wotan has clearly purchased the copyrighted Dalek uh, fire extinguishers because yeah. that's and where we, we first see If I remember them.
1: right, this is where we start to find out that it has some kind of gun jamming mechanism, too.
0: Yeah, it comes in a bit here, Yep, yeah. And uh, so the robot fire extinguishes the heck out of the soldiers and uh, gets some pretty good extended action, which includes soldiers fighting the zombie workers. Meanwhile, the doctor and Ben arrive, and some soldiers come out and report that the machine has wiped them all out. <laughs> the robot comes outside, and more soldiers go after it with grenades and machine guns, but this is where, as you reference, we discover that it's able to sort of keep grenades from exploding and machine guns from firing. So nice little uh, feature <laughs> if you've got it.
1: <laughs> now, I can I interject something about this gun jamming here? Yeah. So it seems implausible on the face of it, and it probably is to a certain extent. But I remember that years and years ago, um, there was a book called, I think it was called Two-Fisted Tales of Bob, which is all like short stories about (laughs) J.R. Bob Dobbs from the Church of the Subgenius. And one of these stories, this would have been late 80s, early 90s, I think. One of these stories was basically just uh, sort of a way of presenting lots of up-and-coming, exciting technologies that might or might not pan out. Like, I remember distinctly that the continuously variable transmission was mentioned in there, and there was uh, some inertial dampening system and this, that, and the other thing. But one of the things that was mentioned in that story, um, as though it was actually a possible up-and-coming technology, was the ability to use vibrations to prevent gunpowder from detonating. So I don't know how, you know, that could have been a real far-fetched thing or it could be, uh, who knows, maybe it's been invented and it's just sitting in a warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant somewhere now. But uh, uh, there <laughs> is, at least there was, some thought that some, such a thing could be possible. That's. I don't know any more than that about it, though, because I haven't followed up on it since. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seems seems unlikely, but you, you know we'll never know. Stranger things have happened.
0: <laughs> so you know, as the robot comes out and jams things and fire extinguishes people, everybody <laughs> listens to Monty Python and decides to <laughs> run away, <laughs> which is actually pretty reasonable. If your guns won't fire, there's not a whole lot you can do. So. Mm-hmm. Except for the doctor. He stands firm with his hands clasping his cloak and a determined look mm-hmm. on his face.
1: And I have to say, for this being the last series that we're going to get live action, Will Hardenall, um, he's looking, this is about as imposing as we've ever seen him. He's got his cloak, and now he's got this black fleece fez type thing. He looks, He looks like a creepy alchemist or something, and he's just marching right in in the face of this War machine. Now, at the time, I rationalized it, you know, by thinking, "Well, the the Votan has said Doctor Who is required, so uh, presumably the War Machine isn't <laughs> going to try and kill him." But it turns out that's not all that's going on here. Uh, but whatever is going on here, the Doctor is completely fearless and uh, implacable. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Next up. Episode four. So we pick up where we left off with the doctor bravely marching in to face the rampaging war machine. And we find out that not only are the guns jamming, even the grenades will go off. So again, you know, if we go with my theory of the vibrational gunpowder suppressor, uh, you know, the grenades (laughs) might be using gunpowder too. So it's a... Could make sense if you believe that stuff is possible. So anyway, uh the the war machine just kinda it seems to lose its lose its purpose. It it just sort of wanders around the vicinity for a moment, uh, it sort of ignores the doctor, and finally it just it just comes to a stop.
0: It doesn't seem like the intelligence of Wotan is totally behind like these are kind of independent robots and they don't seem to have a whole lot of intelligence. Yeah,
1: yeah, and we'll find out in a minute that the computer isn't completely programmed. But we'll we'll get to that very shortly. But first, right. we we go to a public house, which is British for bar, and uh, there's people in there drinking. And this this is one of those scenes that really reminded me of Quatermass in the Pit because there's a very similar mm-hmm. scene uh, toward mm-hmm. the ending, if I remember right. But you know, right before the uh, everything hits the fan, you know the uh, the people in London are sitting at the bar and uh, you know, they're hearing all these bulletins on the TV or radio or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's another classic uh, science fiction, especially British science right. fiction bit.
1: Yep. So the anchorman is saying that the uh, war machine, uh, the Ministry of Defense is now calling it the war machine. Um, it's out of action. And the ministry has announced that further attacks can be expected in the next 24 hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they know that, but okay. I mean, it's true. They're they're right in this case if if things go as they're going, but I don't know why they would be able to say that. yeah,
1: I'm not sure unless uh, unless it had something to do with Ben's report to the doctor and uh Sir Charles. Maybe somehow that information filtered out to the ministry. Anyway, back uh where the action's going on, Covent Garden The doctor is saying that the the war machine's computer hadn't been completely programmed because this machine was activated before it was ready. Uh, And Sir Charles points out that's because we launched our attack early before it was ready for the noon deadline. So uh, Ben comes out. He says he searched the warehouse, couldn't find any sign of Polly. And the doctor seems not very concerned. He says, my dear young man, I haven't the time to discuss Polly at the moment. And he's getting warm from doing all his reprogramming, so he takes his cloak off and gives it to Ben to hang on to. When Ben takes it, uh, something falls out of it. And Ben bends over and picks it up and holds it up for a minute just so that the audience can see clearly that he picked something up that fell out of the cloak. And it's it's a key, and it will come into play a little later. So the doctor, okay, so maybe maybe I'm wrong about the uh, Ben knowing that they were going to attack at 12, because now this is where the doctor realizes that the programming was to attack at 12. So I guess I was wrong about all that speculation. Yeah. I just engaged in not the first <laughs> time, I suppose. Anyway, Major Green is coming around now. He's snapping out of the... Uh, Votan's spell, and he has no recollection of anything that he's done. Uh, People that he's killed uh, during his service to Votan. says, where am I? What is this place? And now Sir Charles reports that uh, another war machine is approaching the Battersea Power Station, which, uh, if I remember right, was on a Pink Floyd album cover at one point. And the doctor says, gentlemen, we've got to capture it. And he he knows that it will be electromagnetically controlled, and that's what his plan is going to involve. (laughs) Now, back in the laboratory in the post office tower, Dr. Brett says that Votan will consider Polly's case later, and if she's guilty, she'll be destroyed. But for now, she's needed to help around the lab, and she seems to be perfectly happy with that. Back in the market with Sir Charles and the doctor, Uh, The doctor's pointing out stuff on a map, and you can't really see well what the map is showing you, but it seems to me if the map had any any kind of scale above being one small neighborhood of London, he's probably pointing off like three roads a half mile apart that he can block (laughs) them off and funnel the war machine into his trap. But whatever whatever the scale of the map, his plan turns out to work. Uh, it goes just as just as envisioned. The machine goes right where they wanted it to, and he's got three. He's got the beginnings of a square of electrical cables, and he's got three sides of it already walled in with cables. The fourth side, Ben is going to run out after the machine falls into the trap. Ben's going to run out and close the fourth wall, and that will trap the machine inside, in theory. That's the plan. Hmm. So the machine comes along. We get a little bit more padding while we wait in suspense for uh, the right moment for Ben to drag the cable across. Uh, finally, the doctor says now, and everything goes swimmingly. Ben gets the cable in place. He uh, uh, gets the power fired up, and now uh, the machine is just bouncing around in there like a pinball. It doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so then, not much later, we find out that the doctor has made an important readjustment, he says, uh, to aid and change the purpose of this machine. And the minister says it sounds as though he's changed the machine's character. The doctor says, well, you could say that. <laughs> so Ben asks about Polly again. He thinks that she's gone back to the lab, which she has. The doctor says, well, we can't check up on that now, my boy. So Ben dashes off, as it says in the script notes here. He uh, doesn't wait f- for the doctor to give him marching orders. He's got to go check on Polly. Back in the laboratory, uh, Dr. Brett is uh, saying these machines have to be ready to attack in exactly 11 minutes. Because that's that's <laughs> the release date we promised, and that's what we're sticking to. <laughs> and Votan says uh, incomprehensibly, but thanks to the script notes, I have the order to attack will come from Votan. We see War Machine going through London, uh, you know, going down alleys, knocking over trash cans, whatever. The Doctor is theorizing that uh, when when the War Machine meets its master and its designer, Votan, uh, he says it will be like the crossing of two electrical currents. So, uh, it's got to have the hair standing up on the back of your neck at this point, just wondering what's going to happen next. It didn't for me, but you know, it should. That was the intention anyway. So, War Machine gets into the tower, and I, I guess it must just take an elevator up. Uh, I doubt it went up the stairs. Um, but while the machine is still en route to the lab, Ben is up there and he grabs Polly. Um, and Without too much uh, obstruction, he manages to wrestle her out of the room. And he does it just in time, because the war machine is finally there on the same floor as the rest of the laboratory. He gets in there, and he fires at the computer, Votan. And Crimpton, the uh, sort of stereotypically scientist-looking scientist, he tries to stop it, and he gets whacked. Poor end for Mr. Crimpton. If he'd just stuck around a little longer, Mm. uh, everything would have gone back to normal. But as John Kerry once says, how do you tell a man he'll be the last to die for a mistake? So, (laughs) poor old Crimpton. Yeah, he was a good guy. All the other war machines, the doctor says, are immobilized uh, because they're still waiting for orders. Orders that will never come. So... (laughs) <laughs> Going pretty well for the human side of the battle. So that's all That's all settled and fixed and put to bed, and it's a good time for the doctor to make tracks. Now that once again he's saved the day, and once again he has somehow teleported right into the place where he's needed the most, at least at that point in time and space. So he's back at the TARDIS. Polly and Ben come running towards him. Polly has a message. From Dodo. And this is just a sad, cheap way of writing her out of the story. You know, we last saw her, what, two episodes ago? And uh, that yeah, was yep. the last we're going to see of her. Polly says, she says she's feeling much better and she'd like to stay here in London. And she sends you her love. And uh, the doctor grumbles <laughs> a little about this. You know, she couldn't even be bothered to say goodbye to him in, in person. But uh, <laughs> Or... Or the producers couldn't be bothered to pay her to show up. (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be what it was. And it's a a shame. I I liked Dodo. I was really warming up to her. But uh, she's gone now. And uh, the doctor tells Polly and Ben goodbye. He says, run along, enjoy yourselves. And uh, they go away, but they turn and watch and see the doctor as he gets into the, the TARDIS uh, and they see that he's using a key, and that triggers a memory in Ben. He says, that reminds me. So Polly says, come on. And they both head back to the TARDIS to give uh, the doctor his extra key. And the door to the TARDIS is not locked, but uh, Polly points out that a key might open the door. So <laughs> the key that they're coming to return, he uses in the TARDIS's door, and it works. And you can guess what's coming next. <laughs> Now that the doctor had <laughs> briefly been reduced to zero companions, uh, they get into the TARDIS and that dematerializing thing happens. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> and the series for that matter. The end of the story, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, so what do you think of our new companions, you know, Polly and Ben?
1: Oh, they, they could be good. You know, I'm, uh, I, I liked them in, this, uh, in these four episodes, so they got potential. They were both, uh, you know, I, I could see them turning out pretty good. It's not like we're going to have a lot of time for them to turn out good, because I, I think we only have two story arcs left.
0: Well, that doesn't mean they have to leave no. at that point. No.
1: They don't have to leave with oh, the Oh, really? Doctors. But but isn't there I'm isn't not... there some long delay of like years before the next doctor? No, no. Oh, that's uh, that's like decades
0: in the future. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so yeah, yeah. So no, no, they
1: don't have to go. I'm not saying whether they do or not. All I'm right. just saying they but don't I, have to. I, I could could be all wet about that. So hmm. well, if <laughs> uh, if they do stick around, uh, you know, that 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 sounds like it could be a good thing. I mean, we're not. Sounds like we're not going to see much of them in live action in the near future, no matter how long they stick around. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they got a lot more. Well, thankfully,
0: as we get to the next doctor, we're mostly not dealing with reconstruction at this point. We mostly get animated versions. Uh, so at least we get to, to watch things moving on nice. screen. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, I would say, I mean, Ben to me is kind of generic at this point. Uh, what I like about Polly is that. She really, and I think this comes from the act, the actress who I've seen a lot of interviews with. She really has a personality, and when people treat her in that sort of you know stereotypical sexist way, she doesn't give them a speech, but she sort of personally reacts in a way that's in you know fun and and yeah. all that, so which is better than giving people a speech
1: but yeah. she so you know it makes almost, her displeasure known in any event oh, okay. yeah. Fair enough.
0: So I think we'll we'll see how how that goes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously, what they did to Dodo was was pretty bad. But you know, I think a really good story for the Doctor. You know, he didn't. He had like that one line early on. He messed up where he said, "I sent oh, it," right? Yeah. And, and she, uh, which did, uh, uh, which led but, to that um, great
1: uh, ad lib uh, by Dodo. So right. it was worth it just to get that. I think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, uh, you know, he's not messing up his lines. He has a lot of presence in this story for once, you know, after everything they've been doing to him. And, you know, it is all live action. So, I mean, and now I've seen this story several times. So, for me, it is nostalgic. But to me, like uh, I'd said earlier... You know, it's good science fiction ideas that are completely relevant today, if anything really more relevant today than then about, you know, do you want to let AI take over all of our computers yeah. and, and society? And uh <laughs> although if uh, the best AI can come up with is this uh rock'em sock'em robot, we're <laughs> probably okay. <laughs> but,
1: uh... Yeah, that uh the arm hammers just were not impressive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But like I say, for me, having dorky robots is is even part of the yeah, charm, uh, right? So, uh, but, so I just I, to me, this is just classic Doctor Who. I I enjoy it, and uh, you know, I can't separate out my nostalgia from it. So that's why you know, as the uh, newcomer to all this, you have to you have to determine for our listeners: is is this worth them watching? <laughs>
1: yeah, it, uh, I'd give it a mild recommendation. I mean, it's uh, it it's definitely. Well, padded even by Doctor Who standards, but uh, it is some fun stuff. And, uh, you know, this is the last time we're going to see Hart in live action and uh, Dodo for them at her. And-
0: well, there'll be more live action, but it's the last time we get the full story. All in right. Live action. So, okay. um, the last story, we might even get most of it in live action. I forget exactly. I think like at least one episode is gone.
1: These are fun. It's a fun story arc. Not, not the greatest. I wouldn't say by any means, but uh, but entertaining. Uh, so it's not must see TV, but it's uh, could see TV. That's my verdict. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, we're
0: back to a reconstruction. I know nothing about it. The Savages. Mm. We'll see you next week. <laughs>